studying the book of Hebrews together. If you're with us today and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. And it's always great to be able to hear the Word of God, but doubly great to be able to hear it and read it and see it with your own eyes. And, and uh, so we want you to have a Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 26. Some of the most, really, uh, most sobering uh, language in the entire New Testament, in a Bible that's filled with uh, pretty, pretty sobering language. And this almost goes into its own category of, you know, a handful of places with this, this kind of uh, stern clarity. Uh, loving clarity, but stern. Uh, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then the writer closes this section by saying, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition or destruction, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your word as we always do. We are so grateful, never cease to be grateful for your word and what it does in our lives. Thank you that you're speaking, God. Thank you that you're revealing, God. Thank you that you want us to know about you and to know your ways. And thank you, Lord, for the privilege of walking in your ways. And we pray that you would open up this powerful but simple passage to each one of our hearts today. We've been created by you and this passage is intended to accomplish something important in each one of us. And we pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit that it would accomplish that exact work. And so, Lord, we say, speak, Lord, your servant hears. We long to hear what your spirits would speak to the churches. And so speak to us today, we pray, 
And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We remember the temptation being considered by the Jewish Christians that the writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to. The circumstances that they are facing at this time in their walk with the Lord is very significant and very, very difficult. They are paying a tremendous personal price for remaining faithful to God, God's calling upon uh, their lives, being faithful to obey His Word. They're paying a great price for being identified with the name of Christ in this world because this letter was written at a time of tremendous persecution, not only against them, but against Christians in general, a great persecution that stretched out across the Roman Empire uh, during the reign of a Caesar, uh, a Roman emperor by the name of Caesar Nero. And in the hardship of the persecution and the hardship of the suffering that they were going through, what they were contemplating was in order to find relief from that hardship and persecution, they were considering abandoning their commitment to Jesus alone for salvation and considering returning to uh, a religious system that taught salvation and a right standing before God can be achieved through human effort or through good works uh, or through legalism, which of course is no salvation at all. And since this is the single most important decision that anyone will ever make in their life, what we do with Christ, because it not only affects the quality of life that we have today, but it affects our entire eternity, and eternity is a very, very long time. The writer of the book of Hebrews steps up and takes pen into his hand by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he delivers a very, very strong warning to these Jewish believers against doing what it is that they are contemplating. Now, again, as as I declared in my teaching in in this same book in chapter 6, verses 4 through 12, a similar passage to this one in a sermon entitled, The Peril of Apostasy, This warning against apostasy is being made to genuine Christians who are being tempted to deliberately and willfully and knowingly and finally abandon their faith in Christ for salvation, to become an apostate. I want you to notice in the passage that Uh, In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, the entire book is written to believers. The writer wrote and said, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the holy heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. So the letter is written to Christians, and the warning here is for Christians. In verse 29, he tells us uh, we can see that he is writing to those He declares to have been sanctified by the blood of Jesus. In verse 30, he further reveals to us that they knew God. Uh, He writes, for we know Him. It wasn't that these people knew 
of God. A person can know of God and not be saved. But the word that is used here means to know by experience, to have a relationship with God. These are Christians who have a relationship with God. He tells us in verses 32 through 34 that they had suffered uh, for Christ, and, uh, and so they weren't this, uh, those that, you know, the, the seed went into the shallow soil and it sprouted up quickly, and as soon as persecution came, uh, they quickly uh, folded. They had a, a long history with God and uh, had suffered for Christ. In verse 36, <clears throat> he told them that they had need of endurance. He didn't tell them that they have need of being born again uh, or casting doubt upon their salvation. He warns them that they have need of endurance in the face of the temptation that they were uh, looking at. And then the author of the letter himself, verse 39, who is obviously a Christian, he strongly identifies himself with them by saying, but we, so he's talking, including them as Christians, we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. And so he's not saying, I know I'm a Christian, but I have my doubts about whether you were really born uh, again. Now, for those of you who are new to the church in the last <clears throat> few weeks, I refer you to that former teaching in Hebrews chapter 6. You can get it at the media counter in the fellowship hall after the service or go online and pick it up for free off of the website and stream it for a further handling of all of this. I want to return at this point to kind of our task at hand this morning, and that is the writer's warning not to abandon faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and for the simple reason that there is no other source for the forgiveness of sin. Now, the problem with apostasy, he tells us in verse 26, is that it sends a person into eternity without a sacrifice for sins. It sends a person into a Christless eternity. And when he speaks there of the knowledge of the truth, he's referring to the gospel, to the truth concerning salvation. They knew the truth concerning salvation. And what is the truth concerning salvation? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3, 16, 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And when he warns against sinning willfully here, he's not talking about sin in general, willfully sinning against any of the commandments of the Lord. He's talking about willfully sinning against the truth about salvation, abandoning the truth that salvation is found in Christ alone which is apostasy. Now, the writer tells us that to abandon Christ is to abandon salvation because He alone has provided us with the sacrifice that is required for the forgiveness of our sins. In other words, 
the complete forgiveness of sins, the washing away of sins, the cleansing of sin, it comes from Christ's sacrifice, from his death alone. As the writer told us earlier in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 17, therefore in all things he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word propitiation is a very, very important word in the New Testament. And it's not a word that you use every single day. You know, Monday you go to work and you're Everybody's pouring their coffee in the office, and people start talking about propitiation. I mean, it's a distinctly Christian word, but we're not afraid of big words as Christians. God's given us a mind to understand them. Big words and uh, uncommon words reveal wonderful things about God. That word propitiation carries the idea of a satisfying payment. That word was used in ancient times to refer to the act of appeasing another person's anger by the offering of a gift or a sacrifice. And as it applies to Jesus' sacrifice for our sins, it is only His sacrifice that makes the full and satisfying payment that is required for the forgiveness of our sins. It is only His sacrifice that makes it consistent for God to pardon. It is only His sacrifice that satisfies God the Father, that satisfies the righteous requirements of heaven, and it is only Jesus' sacrifice that appeases the wrath of God the righteous wrath of God toward our sin. And God's wrath toward our sin is real. He could not be a holy God if He was indifferent to sin. And in the words of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, verse 26, it is Jesus' death upon the cross alone which allows God to remain just while at the same time justifying or forgiving sinful man. And as much as God loves man, as much as He longs to have a relationship with us, as much as He wants to one day bring us into the glory of heaven, He cannot ignore the seriousness of our sin or the very real consequences of sin. He would be unrighteous if He did. So what's the solution for God? How does He remain righteous and holy and still save sinful man? And there's only one solution. He was able to do it through Jesus' death upon the cross because it's there that He provided a way for Jesus' righteousness, a perfect righteousness to be put to our account, the only righteousness that is uh, suitable and acceptable in heaven. And, and at the same time, 
not dismiss or ignore the seriousness of our sin. No one can look at the cross of Calvary and Jesus on that cross and ever declare that God is soft on sin or that God doesn't care about sin or that to talk about sin just produces a kind of collective shrug from God. Now, the cross of Calvary speaks of the love of God for us and His desire for us to be saved, but it also speaks to us of the seriousness of sin. And it is only the salvation that's provided as a result of Jesus' death upon the cross that allows God to remain just and still be the justifier of sinful man. And it is only through a faith in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins that allows him to remain a righteous, holy God and still save unholy sinners and remain holy and just in doing so. Because on that cross, the penalty for our sin wasn't casually dismissed, but Jesus bore our sin. He paid the price for our sin. And he paid the penalty that was required for our forgiveness. If you're, not a, if you're here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, until you put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you need to know that God's righteous anger and his righteous wrath hangs over your sin. He loves you. He wants to save you and forgive you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants you to be in heaven with him forever. But he cannot dismiss your sin. And because your sin is undealt with in a satisfactory way, in the way that God chooses, his wrath has to continue to abide and be directed toward your sin. It, Paul wrote to, to the Romans in Romans chapter 5 and said, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, much more than now having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And so God loves us, but that sin issue has got to be dealt with. And how is it dealt with? By putting my trust or my faith in Jesus as the heaven-sent Savior, as the gift of salvation to mankind, putting my trust in God's Savior, honoring God in that way, and then beginning a relationship with God as a result, and, and then walking in that relationship. The only way is through faith in Christ. There is, we live in a culture that is in a, um, it is in a decline spiritually, to be sure, and uh, it is a failure on the part of people, people in our culture, and increasingly so, to see sin as serious. People view sin much less serious today than they probably ever have in the history of our nation, uh, given our heritage. And, and so there is this failure on the part of people in our culture to view sin as something serious, and that then keeps them from becoming serious about securing God's salvation and forgiveness of their sins. And this is, it's a great deception 
that is all around us related to sin and that's going on uh, in this nation all around us. What are the ways that we deal with sin? Rather than God's ways of confessing it, asking for forgiveness and repenting of sin, uh, that's anathema today, increasingly so. And so what do people do? Well, they try to resolve sin by renaming it. And so adultery becomes an affair. You hardly ever hear uh, adultery spoken of by the word adultery anymore. It's almost exclusively referred to as an affair. So we rename the sin in order to soften uh, its impact and to soften people being confronted with wrongdoing and an attempt to lift a stigma off of sin. The problem is, is that the God who has written this book is the God who has created us. Every single human being pays a terrible price to violate God's commandments. You see, I, I don't feel like I've been violated. I left her and I got her and I feel like all of… No, no, you have violated something. You, you are now going against the stream, not only of all of creation and how all of creation has been created in terms of a physical sense, but you are now going against how it's been created and emotionally, mentally, spiritually. To violate God's Word puts me in a stream where I have got to swim against that stream all of my life. That's why you see the kind of physical breakdown in people's lives so much when they engage in sin. They are going against the creation. They are going against God's way, His wisdom. We notice when it happens physically, but what we don't recognize at so much, we don't recognize the root of it when we see people breaking down mentally, and we see them breaking down emotionally, and they can't put their finger on it. All my friends tell me it's okay. All my friends tell me it's no big deal. The government tells me it's fine. The government passes laws to protect my right to engage in this sin. The majority of the people in the whole world believe that this isn't sin and it's okay, and yet somehow I know I am paying a terrible price to go against God's way in this thing. It's the inevitable. And so this whole thing that goes on with it, and the casualties mount up as man deals with sin his way rather than dealing with it God's way. And God's way is simple, and it's complete, and it's powerful because he stands behind it. Think about the redefining of sin. Now, homosexuality is a gay lifestyle. Do not walk out of the room because I mentioned gays and mentioned it unfavorably and as a sin. That's childish. I'm tired of people walking out for that kind of nonsense if you can't handle the truth. I think about today fornication, sex outside of marriage. It's no longer called fornication. You'd never hear it referred to as fornication. Now it's living together, abortion, a woman's right to choose. And yet the price that people pay, and only God knows it, 
to engage in these sins that are being redefined in order to soften them and in order to make them uh, socially acceptable and in order to remove the, the uh, stigma from these things. And then, again, legislation passed in order to protect a person's right to do all of these things. And God's standard of right and wrong, His definition of sin, is just made to look foolish and old-fashioned and out of touch, and He's so non-progressive. And people think that they're so… because so many people believe what I believe about sin and what I believe is contrary to what God believes, that uh, what God thinks about it anymore, it doesn't matter. But it does matter. And I can't change the world. I can't even change me. That's a God project. You can't change the world. All you can do is deal with you, just you as an individual, between you and God, and decide, am I going to accept God's definitions of right and wrong? Or am I going to definish man's definitions, my own uh, definitions? But the thing that we need to know from the voice of God related to His Word is that what God thinks about sin and forgiveness and salvation is all that matters. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Sin matters. Forgiveness is necessary, and forgiveness is only found in Jesus, and that's God's truth on the subject. And now the only question becomes is, what are you going to do with that? Everyone will do something with that truth and then be held responsible for that decision. But the question here this morning in the privacy of your own heart is what will you do with God's truth and with His voice concerning this? Not what your business partner is going to do or your mom and dad or your children or friends or other peers or co-workers. What will you do with that truth? Now, the consequences of rejecting Christ, he lists beginning in verse 27, and he tells us in verse 27 and 28 that one of the consequences is a, is a terrible judgment. It results in, he tells us, a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation. In other words, this judgment is certain, it is fiery, and it is fearful. He tells us further in verse 27 which, that which will devour the adversaries. In other words, rejecting Jesus puts a person in the category one day of being an adversary of God. That's heavy. The rejection of the Son of God, how the Father feels about that rejection, it makes God the Father indignant. And then he gives us an example in verses 28 and 29 from the law of Moses, and he's essentially declaring that if willful disobedience to the law of Moses on the part of a child of God in the Old Testament, and namely the abandoning of the worship of the true and the living God in order to engage in idolatry, which was a capital crime in the law of Moses, that that person would be put to death for idolatry, for leaving God, for the worship of something else, and only though uh, un, 
under the weight of two or three witnesses in order to get, make sure that the facts were correct. And he declares here, how much worse punishment do you suppose one is due for rejecting Christ, the very Son of God? And so he argues from the lesser to the greater, if sinning against the law of Moses resulted in death, then sin against the greater, that is Christ, is worthy of an even greater consequence, a punishment that is worse than physical death, and of course that punishment is a, an eternal uh, judgment. Then notice in verse 29 how God views the rejection of His Son and how God views the rejection of the salvation that is found in Christ alone. And it's a, a, quite an intense verse, verse 29. So I wonder how God views the rejection of His Son for salvation by the world as a whole, but also by individuals. He tells us that it is to trample the Son of God underfoot. In other words, this is a sin against God the Father, who gave His Son as a sin offering because it was the only way we could be saved. And to reject Christ is to trample Him under our feet. The Father said concerning Jesus at His water baptism at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he, he spoke at that site and He said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son. The Father loves the Son. The Son is dear to the Father. So the Father is affected by how the Son is treated in every way, but certainly by man and by each of us. And he views any and all rejection of his Son as trampling Jesus underfoot. So it is a sin not only against Jesus, but it's a sin against the heart of the Father. It is to treat God the Father with the utmost contempt and indignity. There is nothing worse that can be done against God the Father than this, the rejection of His Son, because it is to humiliate and to disrespect God in a way that nothing else does and in a way that is impossible to communicate in a human language. You think about it. God the Father in heaven. Think about Him there. All of the honor all of the glory, all of the praise that is lifted up to Him continually and deservedly so. And then all of heaven watches individual men and women 
maybe even you this morning, dishonor and disrespect and you humiliate him in this way by rejecting his son, sent by him, sent by God the Father to provide you with the forgiveness of sins. Wow. I would not want to stand in that person's shoes on the day that they ultimately stand before God the Father. He tells us second that it is to count the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. This is, <clears throat> speaks of the fact that the rejection of Christ is a sin against Jesus. It's a sin against God the Son. To reject Christ is to say that his blood is common, is no different from anybody else's blood. There's nothing special about him, nothing special about that sacrifice of him on that cross, nothing s special about that blood that flowed in Emmanuel's veins, nothing special about the blood that flowed down the cross and fell to the ground below. His blood isn't any different than my own blood. Nothing special about him, his life, his blood, his sacrifice. It's as powerless uh, to save as my own blood. It's worthless for salvation. That's how God views. That's how Jesus views the rejection of his salvation. Then you turn to the Bible, which is to turn to sanity, to clarity related to any subject that it addresses. And what does the Holy Spirit have to say about the blood of Christ? Peter wrote and said, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus said concerning his own blood, he said as he instituted the Lord's Supper, this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. This blood is powerful enough to open up a whole new covenant or way of relationship with God. In heaven, the salvation found in Jesus' blood alone is rightly celebrated, and it will be forever and ever. Let me read one of the praises that's offered up to Jesus in heaven, Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. Now, when he, that is Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth, all because of Jesus' blood. And to say that his blood is common, is unable to save, is an indescribable insult to the heart of the Son, to Jesus himself. And then notice the rejection of Christ, he tells us, is an insult or literally an outrage 
to the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he has been sent into the world to testify of Jesus. And for a Christian to reject Christ and to become an apostate is an insult, and it's an outrage to the Holy Spirit who went to great lengths to bring us to faith in Christ to begin with. It's one of the wonderful things to become a Christian and then to look back. So you don't, you, you don't see it immediately. But as you walk with him for weeks and months and sometimes years, you can look back and see how active the Holy Spirit was for years and years in endeavoring to bring us to Christ, saving our lives many times so we'd live long enough to be able to do that, protecting us from decisions that would have taken us even further away from God that great work of the Holy Spirit to bring us to Christ and then for a person to then walk away after all of that work and effort, that labor of love by the Holy Spirit. Talk about an, an insulting gratitude. Today the Holy Spirit works all day, every day, the Bible teaches, related to every single unsaved person in this room and every unsaved person in the whole wide world. He works all day, every day, everywhere in the world to lead individual people to recognize their sinful condition, bring them under conviction of sin and the life that they're leading, and then to point them to Christ as the way of salvation, the forgiveness of sins. And to reject that gracious work of the Holy Spirit, that voice of the Holy Spirit in rejecting Christ as your Savior, it is an outrage and it is an insult against the Holy Spirit. And that's very, very heavy. How bo all, both the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are impacted by but one person's rejection of Christ. And he warns us in verse 30 that God is going to judge it because he must judge it. In other words, this judgment is not an idle threat on God's part. And then he further warns us in verse 31, in case we haven't quite figured it out yet, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, that is, to face judgment, to face him as judge, having rejected his son. That's heavier than you could ever, ever put into words. In other words, God isn't kidding concerning any of this. The single greatest thing that a person can ever do to honor God and to love God is to put our faith in his son. Here's how Jesus put it in John chapter 16. For the Father himself loves you, he spoke to the disciples because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. It's the single greatest way we can show honor and respect and express love to God is to put our faith in the Son that he sent into this world to pay that price for the forgiveness of our sins, and the single greatest insult a human being is capable of directing toward God is to reject that same Son 
concerning salvation. Notice finally in verses 32 through 39 his encouragement or his exhortation to them. And basically what he does here is he reminds them that they had already faced very significant hardship in their life, earlier in their Christian life, when it had never entered their mind to become an apostate. They had faced tremendous difficulty earlier in their Christian life, and it never entered their mind to be anything other than faithful to God and continue in their relationship with the Lord. Sometimes that's funny. You walk with the Lord for a long time, for a lot of years, even for decades, and sometimes you need someone to just stop you and to say, do you realize you think you're more spiritual? You think you're more amazing as a Christian simply because all of these years have gone by. Yes, you know an awful lot more about God because of your time and title as a Christian. But you're thinking about doing things today you would have never thought about doing when you were two weeks old in the Lord. So while we know so much more than we knew when we were two weeks old in the Lord, our commitment has caved over the years. We've allowed options to come into our minds that we would have never dreamed of as a brand new baby as a Christian. And that's what he's trying to tell them. You've been through harder stuff. You've faced harder difficulties and suffering in your life, and you stood strong. And what you did years ago, you have the capacity to do now. And he does it not to make fun of them or to rebuke them unnecessarily, but as an encouragement to them. So they'd go, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. I've been through this kind of thing before. What in the world am I thinking? And so he tells them in verse 32, they'd already endured great uh, struggle with suffering and, and had successfully endured it. He tells them in verse 33 that they had been made a spectacle by reproaches and tribulations. So they'd already gone through ridicule and uh, persecution for their faith, public uh, mocking for their faith in Christ, and they'd remained faithful to God. Verse 33, they'd been persecuted because they were willing to become companions and stand by publicly those who were also Christians and being persecuted. And even verse 34, they had some kind of a past relationship with a writer uh, of the book of Hebrews. They had shown compassion to him while he was imprisoned for his faith. He tells us further in verse 34, they had joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods simply because they were Christians. Their goods were taken away from them. And what was their response? Thoughts of apostasy, abandoning God, leaving their faith, going to something easier. No, they accepted the loss and the plundering of their goods with joy and they were, because they were confident in the eternal wealth that was awaiting them at the end of a faithful life. And the writer is basically saying to them and to us, you've been through a lot worse than this, and you've remained faithful. And by God's grace, 
you can be faithful in the situation that you're in right now. I don't know your heart as a Christian. I don't know what you're facing. I know what I face in life. I know what temptations. I know what hardship. I know what. We know what concerning our own lives. So I don't know what's going on in a room like this and who's thinking what. But if you're Christian and you're thinking about abandoning Christ and Christianity and the salvation that is found only in Him in order to find some easier path, physically easier path in life, the writer of the book of Hebrews warns you this morning, don't do it. And he tells them, verse 35, not to cast away their confidence in God, which has great reward. He reminds them and us there's great reward. Whatever price we pay, when I come to die, give me Jesus. We've already sung it. Whatever price we pay for following Christ in this life, it's nothing in comparison to the glory and the blessing and the reward that will one day be ours in heaven. I reckon, Paul said, that's Oakdale talk. I reckon Texas talk. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. That word reckon is interesting. It's a word picture. It means to weigh in the balance. He says you take all of the suffering that any of us could ever face as a Christian in this world and the worst parts of the world and put it on one side of the balance, and he says it isn't even worthy to compare the two, the glory that will be revealed that awaits us in comparing the two. So how does Paul know? <laughs> Who made him the big expert? God did. Paul went through more suffering than probably a hundred Christians who go through all put together in the United States of America. They had the privilege of being taken up into the third heaven and seeing the glory of that heaven. Not even speaking of the individual reward for faithfulness to ministry and to the Lord. Just the privilege of being there someday. He said there's no comparison between the two. And so he exhorted them that their need was for endurance, verse 36, just to keep on keeping on as the old saying goes, and we'll have a lot to say about endurance in the coming weeks. And he reminded them of the blessings of, of endurance in verses 36 through 38. And finally in verse 39, he tells them that they're not even to think about abandoning their faith in Christ for salvation for any reason is not an option for you. It is to draw back to perdition. So the warning of the writer of the book of Hebrews here, and it's a needed warning that a Christless eternity is to be avoided at all costs. Whether I go into a Christless eternity on the basis of apostasy or on the basis of having rejected Jesus ever as my Lord and ever as my Savior. That is to be avoided at all costs because a rejection of Jesus disrespects and it humiliates God the Father. It is an insult to the Son and it is an outrage to the Holy Spirit. You think about one day facing them having done that. Just a little old frail, little finite human being 
facing the entirety of the Godhead after having rejected the offer of salvation, an offer that God was able to make at tremendous expense to himself. No one wants to be there because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God loves you. God wants to save you, wants to begin a relationship with you today. And then God wants you to be in heaven with him forever and ever and ever after this life. And all of that becomes yours by simply putting your faith in his Son for salvation. They came to Jesus, a group, and they said, what shall we do that we may do the works of God? Tell us the things we need to do to work our way into heaven. And Jesus answered and he said to them, this is the work of God. I mean, they had their pens out. Just, we'll, don't say it too fast. We're going to write it all down and we're going to do it. He said, this is the work of God that you believe in him, that is Jesus, whom he, that is the Father, sent. It's that simple. It's that simple. It's that free. Salvation is that close. Everyone has a right to know. And now you know. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service. And if you are not a Christian here today and you say, I'd, I'd like to become one, I've had a sense all of my life that there's something more to life than what I've lived. I've had a sense all of my life, and increasingly so, that I'm paying a terrible price for living under my own wisdom or the wisdom of this world. It is breaking me down physically. It is breaking me down emotionally. It is breaking me down mentally. And there's got to be another path, and there is another path. And it's God's path. And God will save you this morning and put you on that path this morning. And the most beautiful thing about it is he begins a relationship with you today that he'll be absolutely faithful to. You come forward after the service. They'd love to answer your questions and to pray with you this morning. Let's stand together and we'll pray now. Lord, nobody talks like this. Nobody says the things that you say without apology, without flinching, speaking the truth in love. And we thank you for your truth, Lord and that it does not return void, and that you have the ability to reach into a human heart and a human mind and to say to them, this is the way. Now walk in it. I pray, Lord, for each one that stands before you this morning that does not yet know you, that they would hear that voice from your throne. This is the way. Now walk in it. And in